Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. All right, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Macamerge Podcast. This is me, Teresa Chan, and I'm here to welcome you to our next episode. We're featuring two of our very talented regional docs today. Dr. Prasad Falfer will be reporting as a correspondent from William Elsler and Brampton Civic Hospital specifically today. He is interviewing Dr. Jeff Handler, who is one of the ultrasound gurus of their group. Later in the episode, we'll be featuring a new segment called Teaching That Counts. That will be co-hosted by myself and Dr. Alim Naji, who is a physician at both Joseph Brent Hospital in Burlington and also St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, where he is CTU director. Finally, we'll end the segment with a really rich conversation between two wonderful women in emergency medicine, doctors Sarah Luckett-Gatopoulos, better known as Luckett, and of course our host, Dr. Joanna Dita. We're really excited to have an action-packed episode for you. And please stay tuned for our Twitter account, at MacEmerge, that's at M-A-C-E-M-E-R-G, for more news on upcoming events. We're going to be having some really cool speakers. I think it'll be really exciting to see what comes up next. We'd love to see you at our rounds because it's always nice to hang out in real life and you never know what great ideas we might have when we get together. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Prashant to his first episode as a host for our regional campus in Brampton. Take away Prashant. We're really excited to hear what you have to say and more importantly, what talents that you have in Brampton. My name is Prashant, uh, I'm one of the emergency physicians at Brampton Civic, and with me today I have Dr. Jeff Handler, our POCUS director since 1999. Yes, 1999. That's, That's for sure. Hi, Prashant. Thanks so much. Welcome, Jeff. So... Tell us a little bit how you started uh, introducing, how you introduced POCUS to uh, Brampton Civic Hospital. I, I remember, Prashant, back in the day, in 1999, we had a uh, little conference and um, we flew up a POCUS expert uh, from the States who uh, came up and sat us all in a circle as, we, as if we were in kindergarten. And I remember him calling me up and says, uh, Dr. Handler, come on up here. Let me show you how to, um, how to do a fast. You take the probe, turn on the machine, put the gel on and apply the probe to the patient. And uh, from there, it was all history because uh, I was so intrigued. I started doing more courses and more training. And uh, we finally purchased uh, in 99, 2000, after a very short time, a, a little Sonicide 180 uh, POCUS unit. And I remember for five years, this was the only uh, unit that we had. And I was the only person doing POCUS at the time for some basic indications. And of course, since then, it has taken off. 
Uh, some years ago, uh, I would say more than 10 years ago, uh, myself and uh, a number of others from ICU, anesthesia, respirology traveled overseas to uh, train with the master, Dr. Professor Lichtenstein, um, in France. Um, it was one of the first times that it, an interdisciplinary team went overseas together to train uh, for one uh, wonderful indication that basically has revolutionized uh, patient care. Uh, and so it has brought our departments together because now we speak the same language um, in terms of um, our, our focus skills and, and our uh, consults that we make. All right. So for, you know, I want to focus a little on uh, on lung ultrasound today. Um, you know, for those in the audience listening right now, we have, you know, ultrasound is now ubiquitous in emergency departments. But uh, lung ultrasound continues to be a, a field that is poorly understood and perhaps underutilized. Can you speak a little bit about, Jeff, how you use lung ultrasound, whether it's in the critically ill adult patient or your pediatric patients uh, that we you know, often see a, a surge of, especially in, in during the flu season with respiratory complaints? Right off the bat, Prashant, I can tell you that um, lung ultrasound can be performed uh, within minutes um, at the bedside uh, with no concern for radiation dosing. And the accuracy um, and sensitivity and specificity of lung ultrasound um, is extremely high and much higher than a chest X-ray. Not to mention, as an aside, parents of pediatric patients just love the idea of, of um, avoiding chest X-ray and um, seeing the lung ultrasound performed um, in terms of facilitating the care for their children. I, I want to speak a little bit first about there are principles of lung ultrasound. Um, essentially, with practice, it, it becomes a simple technique using a simple unit, simple defined signs relating to air fluid mixing in the lung. The lung is, is the widest organ um, um, in the body, um, and all the signs essentially arise uh, both from the pleural line and from uh, artifact analysis of the lung, which can be very tricky. It's not as simple as what we are taught as A lines and B lines. There, there's much more to ultrasound um, than those basic signs, but practice makes perfect like anything else. For all the major respiratory conditions, COPD, asthma, pneumonia, pneumothorax, CHF, um, clot, there are protocols based on the defining work of Professor Lichtenstein back in 2008 of the Blue Protocol. And so from that, we have extracted um, pretty much all of his work and applied it to our patients with huge success. The sensitivity uh, in pediatrics for pneumonia in particular um, is very high and far greater than uh, a simple chest X-ray in cases of suspected pneumonia. And so we apply it heavily um, in all our cases of uh, pediatrics um, to essentially uh, almost eliminate the concept of doing a chest X-ray. As far as adults, we apply this heavily in, in acute care. Brampton Civic has probably the highest acuity level of any hospitals in Canada, in particular related to acute dyspnea. We need to know immediately to differentiate cases of CHF, COPD, pneumonia. We recently had a case that EMS brought in where bronchodilators were being given to the patient, and even the RT suggested giving bronchodilators to a patient who was wheezy. We found right at the bedside, the patient had interstitial syndrome and uh, was treated with diuresis and BiPAP and markedly improved within minutes. And so the accuracy and quickness of our diagnostics is hugely important. Essentially, the blue protocol is a decision tree suggesting with high probability the most frequent diagnostics in acutely dyspnea patients that are seen in the ER and ultimately admitted to the ICU. 
we can differentiate with high sensitivity and specificity, CHF versus COPD, pneumothorax versus pneumonia. We have pathways for pulmonary embolus. It's important to remember, though, that the decision tree is not designed for providing 100% of diagnosis of acute dyspnea. It has actually been simplified to provide a target of 90.5% of overall accuracy. We have been using the Blue Protocol for many years, and I can tell you right off the bat that it has made a huge difference in our diagnostics. Prashant, we have reached the point now where once we've completed our assessment, and including using the Blue Protocol, I can go to my medicine colleagues for a consult in the absence of any chest x-ray or blood work um, that, that will be all pending. And so it has facilitated our care. You know, we've all, I think all eMERGE docs can uh, relate to the fact that it can often be difficult to uh, reach a provisional diagnosis in the acutely dyspneic patient, uh, especially patients who present with multiple comorbidities. I mean, we all know of, uh, we can all recall uh, giving consults to inter our internal medicine colleagues and our internal medicine colleagues admitting patients with the provisional diagnosis of CHF versus COPD. Lung ultrasound has changed that the dynamic and in fact, you know, we're much, much better at uh, reaching a uh, more definitive diagnosis in the emergency department. I was wondering, Jeff, if you could give us a case that highlights this, this change in practice and how lung ultrasound really has changed the game and, and facilitated a more accurate uh, early diagnosis in the dyspneic patient. I agree, Prashant. Oster's, Oster's POCUS program has progressively and aggressively been developed since 1999 and especially related to lung ultrasound. I just want to go over a, a case that we had uh, in the past uh, year and a half where I was called uh, with a group of students to assess a patient in the short stay unit who was dyspneic. The patient uh, was approximately 61 years old, was admitted for COPD exacerbation. We assessed the patient 24 hours after presentation. The patient had been written up for discharge on that same 24 hours post-admission. We decided to interrogate the patient um, because of the dyspnea and because um, I had a group of students with me um, learning lung POCUS. We immediately, uh, following our principles, found a lung point. Now, it's interesting that, that lung point is one of the three criteria for pneumothorax. As you recall, absence of lung sliding, absence of B-lines, stratosphere sign on M-mode, and lung point make up the criteria for pneumothorax. Finding a lung point is essentially 100% specific for pneumothorax. In this particular case, we found a lung point immediately, and we knew right away that this patient with COPD had a pneumothorax. Prashant, we turned to the MRP and said, your patient has a pneumothorax. The MRP retorted, but the chest x-ray was normal on admission. The MRP decided then to order a CT of the chest. The CT confirmed a 30% pneumothorax. The patient was transferred because of ongoing dyspnea and the presence of the pneumothorax to the acute area of the eMERGE department and received a pigtail catheter, was admitted and did extremely well. Oh, great case, Jeff. You know, it seems like we have these cases every day, uh, and it speaks to the uh, importance of adding lung POCUS into your uh, tool bag uh, of ultrasound skills. Uh, I think uh, of all the bedside ultrasounding we do, uh, 
lung and cardiac ultrasound in the in the uh, dyspneic and short of breath and shocky patients uh, provide potentially the most value to uh, expediting diagnosis and, and initiating the right treatment for our patients. For those of you interested in more uh, training in lung ultrasound, stay tuned. We've also attached some uh, more information for those that are interested in uh, the particular case that uh, Jeff uh, mentioned uh, today, uh, as well as those of you interested in uh, reading more about uh, the BLUE protocol, uh, Dr. Lichtenstein's algorithm for the dyspneic patient. Uh, this has been great. Thanks so much, Jeff, for uh, coming by today. And we look forward to more POCUS discussions in the future. Thanks so much, Rashawn. So thanks to Jeff Handler from uh, Brampton Civic Hospital for our little intro there on lung POCUS. It's uh, very difficult to teach a great deal about POCUS on a podcast, of course, but Jeff gave us a good overall intro into how lung POCUS can be used in the ED for patients in respiratory distress. How one uses POCUS in the emergency department will depend a lot on your local resources, uh, what you have available overnight, and your ability to call people back or have them admitted for definitive testing. I think the one case Jeff used as an illustration was particularly useful. Uh, the undifferentiated patient comes in in acute respiratory distress that is wheezing, and often it's not easy to tell either at the bedside or even after an x-ray if the patient is presenting with an exacerbation of their COPD or a new onset uh, or exacerbation of their CHF. This I found to be one of the most practical uses for lung ultrasound. So in our show notes, uh, we will have a link to the Blue Protocol uh, by Daniel Lichtenstein, uh, who's the big name in lung ultrasound out of France. It's open access articles, so there should be no issues with you guys getting access to it if you don't have a university uh, password. It is fairly comprehensive, uh, and it is a bit of a heavy read for those without a fairly solid extended modality POCUS foundation like, uh, like our fellows have, for example. And the diagnostic algorithm may seem daunting to those new to this application. If you're new to lung POCUS, start with an understanding of what a few of the common signs mean, and then get used to integrating that information to the rest of the clinical picture. So as far as basics go, you're going to want to start with the phased array, or what you'll probably know as the cardiac probe. You want to have a fairly good depth, uh, quite a bit deeper than you might be used to if you're just looking for pneumothorax with the linear probe. You want to get well below the pleural line to look for some of these artifacts. You want to do four points on each side and compare side to side. Okay, so when you're doing a lung ultrasound at the bedside, try to remember to look for the presence or absence of these five key signs. First is lung sliding. An absence of lung sliding might suggest a pneumothorax, although there are other things that may look like that as well. You may see comet tails, uh, which are perpendicular lines that extend down from the pleural line, and they dissipate, unlike uh, B lines, which we'll talk about in a second. Comet tails are a normal finding, but their absence does not mean that there is a pneumothorax there. Lung sliding is by far the most important part. You may see a lung point, which is essentially pathognomonic for a pneumothorax. Number two is A-lines. So these are horizontal, evenly spaced reverberation artifacts. They are obliterated by B-lines. These will have a ray-like appearance that extend from the pleural line, but they don't dissipate in the far field like comet tails do. They obliterate A-lines, as mentioned. You'll see this usually with interstitial syndromes, uh, which is usually indicative of fluid, uh, such as CHF or ARDS if bilateral, or consolidation if unilateral and focal. And you may see this at the bases of normal lungs as well. Number four would be pleural effusions. And number five would be evidence of consolidation. You may see something like pleural shred, air bronchograms, or hepatization of the lung parenchyma. 
And so for people that are new to this, it'd probably be more helpful to learn how to critically integrate the absence or presence of these signs into the clinical picture of the patient in front of you, rather than trying to memorize the whole blue protocol diagnostic algorithm. Is it normal aerated lung in the context of someone that's hypoxic or has respiratory distress? Is there focal fluid or is there bilateral fluid throughout the lung fields? This will help you in a lot of clinical cases. It's obviously very difficult to describe this in any depth on a podcast, so I'm linking to a YouTube video by Dr. Robert Arntfeld out of Western. Uh, it's a pretty good summary. It's about 20 minutes long that discusses some of these signs. I think it's, a, it's definitely worth a watch if this is new to you. We're quite fortunate in the McMaster Emergency Program because we have quite a few staff uh, residents and ex-fellows that are quite proficient in various ultrasound modalities, uh, including long ultrasound. So don't be afraid to ask uh, for some tips and tricks if you run into one of those people. Anyways, if this is completely new to you, I hope that was somewhat useful. Definitely watch the video. That'll explain a lot of what we've talked about here. And until next time. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts. All right, so thanks for tuning in to the first segment of Teaching That Counts with Alim Naji and myself, Teresa Chan. So, Alim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Just introduce yourself to the crowd. For sure. So, my name is Alim Nagji. I'm one of the Emerge Docs. I have the pleasure of working at St. Joe's and Joseph Brandt, uh, where I'm the CTU director for both. By CTU director, you mean clinical teaching unit director? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, as part of my responsibilities, I get to help with the administrative responsibilities of residents and learners and making sure that they have a great teaching environment. Yay! <laughs> All right. So, administrative work. Woohoo! Yes. Uh, well, but the, the, the other part of it is that you also do a fair bit of teaching and you're involved in educational design. And I think that's kind of what gets you excited, isn't it? Yes, for sure. Way more than the administrative side. <laughs> Just to show off a little bit, LLM is one of our esteemed colleagues in the clinician educator diploma, right? now at McMaster University. So he's also nerding out about this large with another training program and he's a glutton for punishment because he's doing some more training above and beyond what he needs to do. So yay for school. Yay. <laughs> um, so in that vein, because he's both a teacher and a student at the same time, um, I think that this model that he's going to tell us about really probably resonates. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the one minute preceptor model on them? For sure. So the one minute preceptor model I've probably already got your attention because it was designed for an eMERGE doc, right? Because we love everything in a minute or less, right? Yeah. And so it's a real easy four-step uh, model that you can pull out on shift to look really suave. And it really helps, I think, for me to solidify learners who are having that um, problem where they can't focus on what they want to do. And so the step one here is getting that commitment for a learner. And I love that for the learner who comes in and says, well, we could do an ultrasound or, or we could do a CT or maybe we should just do some labs. And they're really struggling with narrowing down and actually making and committing to that decision. Yeah, it's almost like what they want to act like a concierge and float yeah. by some <laughs> some some suggestions to you, yeah. a sommelier, right? Yeah, like they're like exactly. acting like you're they're not the boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're serving you, right? And this is key yeah. because if the learner doesn't make that commitment, then cognitively they haven't actually solidified that pathway in their brain. And so what happens is that we've all been in that scenario where they present their story and there's that awkward pause and we just leap in and say, okay, well, we'll do this, right? Okay. Instead, flipping that moment to getting a commitment helps solidify the learning experience and helps them commit to actually making a plan of action. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in this technique, it's okay if they're a little bit wrong. You'll yeah. adjust it later, yeah, right? Yeah, that's fine. So you want, but you want them to like commit 
to an idea, so that when they have something they want to compare your answer to, they've at least kind of written it down. They've they've logged on the record. They've actually decided something. You know, I've had some of the most meaningful conversations where we disagree on the plan. Because、yeah. for a junior level resident, this might be a knowledge gap or performance gap. For senior levels, this might be a practice variation, right? So maybe they've seen it done this way, or they practice it in a different environment, or they're applying something from a previous patient they've seen. So the discussion can be very rich if you've actually committed to what you're talking okay, about. Okay, so commit to the plan and get them to commit to. You have to commit to, right? You have to commit. You you have to also meet them with the commitment. Okay. All right. What's the next step? So step two is to probe for supporting evidence. So now that they've actually committed to a plan, so let's say this is a young female with right lower quadrant pain, and you force them into a commitment, and they've said, okay, we're going to do an ultrasound. Okay. You're going to probe for supporting evidence. So why did you decide an ultrasound is the next step in this patient?、Mm-hmm. What evidence do you have to support that, either from history, physical, or previous investigations, or, inve- or、um, the evidence, or、uh, the evidence?、Yeah. Exactly. Remember, we're from McMaster, so we、yeah. have to say <laughs> evidence-based medicine at least once every podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's the important piece here: is is why did they decide that, and、mm-hmm. it allows you to round out that answer because then you can really decide: is this a knowledge gap? So did they think ultrasound is the best test because you know they they actually don't know that CT is indicated here, or vice versa, or is this actually a practice variation again? So you can really get an understanding of what's the、mm-hmm. frame that the learner is using to to make this next step. Yeah, the new WTF, right? Yeah. What's the frame? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Number three. What's the step number three? So here's where you actually get to teach, and here's where you're teaching that brief general principle that people can take away、oh. from this scenario. Okay. So if you probe for evidence, now you've established where is the gap. You can now teach around the gap, right?、Okay. So if this is a knowledge gap, you can teach around this. If there is an evidence-based medicine gap, so for example, they didn't know the perk rule in this young low-risk patient,、uh, female patient with chest pain that's pleuritic, and you know they want to work her up with the dimer and all that. You might be able to teach here a general principle with the perk rule, for example.、Yeah. So that teaching happens here now that you've identified the frame and the performance gap that's there. Okay,、um, and I would assume that the teaching for a senior learner, where there's a practice variation, might be just to explain your reasoning. Yeah, right. You don't、yeah. even have to like actually teach them something. You can just expose them to more variance. For sure.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and then what's the last and final step? So here, I really like this because it's reinforce what is done right, and then correct the errors. And I like this because it reminds me that sometimes the plan was great, and I have to reinforce what the learner did well, so that they take away from this that they're actually managing this case appropriately. So for your senior residents, this might be that high level. You know, I don't even need to be their EPA assessment, right? For a junior learner, that might be good job identifying a sick patient. So you can reinforce the things that were done right,、mm-hmm. but then also here correct things that you would do differently next time. So really condensing this down into that takeaway, that bite size. What are you going to take take home for the next patient you see with this condition or this presentation? Okay, all right. So let's review. The first step is get a commitment. Second step is probe for supporting evidence. Third step is teach a brief general principle. And fourth step reinforce right, correct wrong. Excellent. If people want to read more, is there a paper this comes from or something like that for the, all the nerds like us that want to dive in a little deeper? Yeah, for sure. So this this comes back from a way back playback、uh, paper from ninety、uh, two, five micro skills model of clinical teaching that was in the Journal of American Board of Family Practice, and you can see it in a cool, trendy color format on our infographic. Excellent. What we'll do is we'll try to put the infographic and the citation into our show notes. Sounds great. So check that out when it comes out.、Um, we have an awesome med student named Maruf who's been doing all our show notes with her, one of his colleagues in Niagara. So it's great. Thank you. Nice. All right, that's it for now.、Uh, tune in next time for another teaching pro.
See ya! That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. See you next time. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello everyone and welcome to Residence Corner. I'm your host, Joanna, and with me today I have one of my fellow colleagues, Dr. Sarah leckett Gutopoulos, a PGY-5 at the McMaster FRCP Emergency Medicine Program, but soon to be a new staff at MUMC and at London Health Sciences. Hooray! <laughs> You're going to have to forgive me if I butcher that last name, FYI. No, you, you did a good job. <laughs> I'm so excited to have her here, not just because she's another resident that I would like to highlight some of the key things and some of the exciting things she's done during her fellowship year, uh, but I'm excited to have her here talk about her work in narrative medicine, as I'm hoping to learn a little bit about it myself together with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me today, Joanna. I have to admit that for the past week, I've been trying to work on my low, sexy podcast <laughs> voice, but unfortunately, I couldn't maintain it, so you guys are stuck with the same old nasal, shrill lucket you know so well with a little bit of seasonal allergy thrown in. <laughs> Perfect. Just the way we like it. Now, let's start off with some basics, if we can, lucket. Um, for those of us that are not very aware of the field, what is narrative medicine? Is it just about writing stories about medicine, <laughs> about patients? And I'm kind of dumbing it down on purpose. I hope you know that. <laughs> That's no problem. Um, you're going to have to bear with me here because this is going to sound kind of complicated and a little academic, but I promise it's actually a bit more straightforward and less ivory tower than it seems at first. So with that said, and I've had to work really, really hard to figure out how to explain to people what this is, narrative medicine is a way of analyzing the stories that we tell and hear about health and about wellness and about medicine itself so that we can understand how we construct meaning around these experiences. So that's the sort of complicated ivory tower part. But pragmatically, we can then use what we learn to improve our patient and provider experience, to create efficiencies within healthcare programs and systems, and to promote ethical practice, among other things. So the field was created by Rita Sharon, who's an internist, uh, but also has a doctorate in English literature. Uh, so given that background, it's really no surprise that, that narrative medicine itself draws heavily on the literary critical method of close reading, which is not actually just holding your book two centimeters from your face, uh, which I've been doing for the past year, but uh, it actually describes a sustained analysis of a brief passage of text. And the focus here is on the formal elements of the text, which is all the things that your English teacher tried to teach you in high school, but you promptly forgot. We're talking about voice, syntax, and fun stuff like that. So in narrative medicine, though, it's not just about what's written down, it's not just about poetry or stories, but the text itself could be that, but it could also be a video, a song, a documentary, or even just what we or our patients say. 
Sounds very interesting. And it's almost like, if I may summarize in a dumb way, it's almost like getting better at that art of medicine that we talk about so often, but in a structured way to help improve patients' experiences and maybe a caregiver's experiences as well. That doesn't sound dumb at all. That sounds like you probably got farther in describing narrative medicine than I have in the past year. So I think that's perfect. <laughs> now, why did you actually choose to do your fellowship in narrative medicine? Was there a particular experience that you can recall? So I've always really loved to read and write, and I care very much about the human aspects of healthcare. Uh, did you know that I was actually editor in chief of my high school newspaper <laughs> for four years? That's impressive! Wow. Uh, I even won the English award for my graduating class. I think people were a little bit surprised when I went into science after high school. Mm. Um, I did stop writing for a long time, but then in medical school I became co-editor-in-chief of the Queen's Medical Review, which was at that time largely expository. Um, but I wanted to introduce a little bit more of creative nonfiction and reflective writing there, and so I started to do that, and it was pretty well received. Eventually, this led me to creating a blog. Uh, this Liminal Space is what it was called, and it was pretty popular. Um, sometimes I got up to 10,000 hits daily, and actually, Public Library of Science named me top blogger of 2015. So, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I promise it's not self-promotion. This is kind of important to the story. So one day I was at the bread bar in Hamilton, and three medical students came up to me, and one of them I ended up going out for coffee with later. And she asked me if I had ever gone to one of the Columbia Narrative Medicine workshops. I was very frank with her and said, you know, thank you so much for reading my blog and recognizing me, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what narrative medicine is. And she said to me that I was already doing narrative medicine, but I didn't know it. Mm. So after that little coffee date, I went home, I started looking it up, and it sounded like something that I would be really interested in. So I started to try and figure out how I would do my fellowship in narrative medicine. Um, but at that time, Columbia only offered a full-time on-site master's degree in narrative medicine. So I would have had to move to New York City for a year, plus pay full-time student uh, tuition at a private American institution as an international student. It just was not feasible. Mm. So the trouble was that at that time, Columbia only offered a full-time on-site master's degree in narrative medicine, which was super expensive. We're talking international student tuition at a private American university, plus moving to New York City for an entire year. It wasn't feasible. What I did instead was I put in a proposal for a self-created fellowship program that involved taking creative writing at U of T. But then something pretty fateful happened. A colleague, Matt Mercury, connected me up with Rita Sharon, who apparently wanted to chat to me on the phone. And when we spoke on the phone, Dr. Sharon told me that they were actually going to be starting a program at Columbia that could be done largely through distance learning. And she invited me to be part of the inaugural class. So, of course, I said yes. I immediately wrote up a new proposal, and the rest is history. Wow, that sounds like quite the journey, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Uh, and I also, to be frank, although I'd known about a lot of the work that you do outside of being a resident, uh, which takes a lot on its own, uh, all of the writing work that you do, I didn't realize I had a celebrity with me, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, uh, Luckett is also a senior editor for uh, Boring EM. Now it's Canadian. Canadian <laughs> for LEM. Mm -hmm. And in addition to, you know, her being very, very active with her previous blog, um, as well as peer reviewer for many journal articles, correct? That's right, yeah, I mostly peer review for uh, CGEM and uh, academic emergency medicine. 
Very impressive indeed. Now, for those listeners who may be interested in narrative medicine and potentially pursuing this further, tell us a little bit about your fellowship year. Where is it currently being offered? So I took my classes mostly by distance, but I did make several trips to New York City over the course of the year, including spending a weekend there for a mandatory in-person narrative medicine workshop. And that's actually where I got to meet several of my classmates in person for the first time, and many of us still stay in contact. And we're kind of working on creating this network of narrative medicine specialists across Canada and the U.S., Um, Now, during introductory courses, I often had to read an entire novel or other book in a week, plus watch a two or three hour film and complete several assignments and discussions. So I always warn people that the amount of work is much more than you might anticipate. It definitely felt like I bit off more than I could chew during that first term, but I made it through. So after the first term, after those introductory classes, I then completed practicums in qualitative research and pedagogical methods and did a further class in ethics. If I thought I'd taken on too much with the introductory classes, the practicum courses elevated it to a whole new level of insanity, but it was well worth it. Now, as to your other question about where you can actually study narrative medicine, narrative medicine right now is only really offered at Columbia. And I'm going to put in a little side note here and say it's important to recognize that medical humanities programs are not narrative medicine programs. That doesn't mean they're not of value because they are, but narrative medicine really focuses on the method of close reading, which isn't central to all medical humanities programs. With that said, I do hope we're going to see some narrative medicine programs in Canada soon. There's a lot of interest, and there are certainly a few of us out there who are doing it. So here in Hamilton, we have Joyce Sazalak, who's a family physician with McMaster Family Practice. And in London, we have Shannon Arnfield, who also studied at Columbia. So adding on to that, I've actually already supervised several learners completing narrative medicine electives here at McMaster University, but also horizontal projects at the University of British Columbia. So I see a groundswell. I think Mm. it's gaining popularity, but we just do not have this as a formalized program in Canada yet. Mm. But great to know about the opportunities that currently exist, right? Even locally and with you specifically. And it sounds like it was an intense and busy year for sure, um, but sounds like part of it was because of the traveling, but also the extra practicum courses and all the other experiences that you made available for your own learning. Although a very unique and well-rounded year for your fellowship, what has this type of work specifically added to your day-to-day interactions with patients and coworkers on the typical shift in the emergency department? I think that's such an important question because while I'm interested in academics, I'm more interested in the day-to-day care of my patients and what my relationships are with my colleagues. Now, what I'll tell you is that I always thought I was a pretty empathic and self-reflective person, but narrative medicine has really humbled me. I mean, with that said, I always knew I was an impatient, somewhat aggressive, aggressive person. So, you know, I'm not sure it came as a huge surprise. But narrative medicine really has given me a lot of insight into how people think, but also how I think, and how we create stories together even when we don't realize we're doing it. Just something that arises out of the interaction between two people. I've become a lot more aware through narrative medicine of what I bring to these interactions, and I've become a lot more curious about what other people bring as well. I really feel like narrative medicine allows me to be a bit of a kinder person, a lot more patient, and way less frustrated. Mm. Uh, So if you will, I feel tolerated, I'd love to give you a bit of an example. Um, Because we've all had these really frustrating patient interactions, right? So I want you to imagine the patient who comes in guns blazing, they really want something, but they have a pretty vague story and they don't really seem all that ill, even if 
they they're telling you they are. So that sort of interaction, which is all too common in the emergency department, used to make me not just frustrated, but really angry. I mean, I'm talking, I was one of those people who had to walk away sometimes. There have been times when I've walked out of the department because I was so frustrated and had to take a minute. Um, just to give you an example of sort of my level of, yeah, of we can, impatience. We can, all share, we can all share that feeling. <laughs> Definitely. So narrative medicine has given me the tools to kind of sit back during an interaction like that and look at the patient and our interaction with more of what I would describe as a detached curiosity. So I can ask myself how the patient's telling her story, why she's telling it in that way. I can ask myself what I'm bringing to the interaction that's changing the way the patient tells her story or why she might need to tell it in a certain way. And I now feel more equipped to help change the story and help my patient feel safer, more satisfied with our interactions. Importantly, I also take these interactions way less personally and carry far less anger and frustration. I must say, I could have totally used those skills last night <laughs> in my shift uh, with a particular patient interaction. And these types of difficult interactions can certainly feel like a regular occurrence sometimes in the emergency department, as Absolutely. we all know. Um, although you've already convinced me why narrative medicine has been beneficial to you, summarize us a little bit about why you think training in this topic is important for current staff, residents, and medical students, whether that's through a formal training certificate or through informal training. So I, I think we all want to be good doctors, at least I hope so. And I know that we all want to have good, satisfying interactions with patients. I think that's probably reason enough to consider training in this area. But if the human aspect isn't quite enough, I want you to think about how understanding narratives could help us understand patients and caregivers, and how we could use this information to create more efficient and less costly systems, better fundraising efforts, more sensitive wellness initiatives, better public awareness campaigns, and more ethical practice patterns. Narrative medicine is no one-trick pony. Okay, sold after that. <laughs> now, from a practical perspective, Luckett, how can current physicians, residents, and medical students get a taste of what this type of work involves? So instead of them reaching out to me, I would like for all our listeners to just have that information available. Yeah, of course. And what I will say is I think it's way, way easier to get involved now than it was even two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. People are starting to know about narrative medicine, and we all really want to see this community grow. So what I would say to you is look into workshops at Columbia. You can attend those. They're not too costly. They're not too time-consuming, and they're really, really great. You could also look at smaller workshops offered locally. I've actually offered workshops locally myself. You can check out the Narrative Medicine Rounds podcast, which is put out by the Narrative Medicine Program at Columbia. You can pick up the book Principles and Practices of Narrative Medicine, which I'm just going to tell you is a much easier read than the previous book, <laughs> which is Narrative Medicine by Rita Sharon. Principles and Practices is a bit more refined and a little bit easier to digest. Um, and you can reach out to narrative medicine practitioners and request information. Trust me, we are all super, super excited to meet with people, um, to supervise a special project or elective, and just generally to welcome curious newcomers into the field. We would love to hear from you. We want to see narrative medicine become a thing. For sure. Sounds like a passionate group of people that you've surrounded yourself with and might have to take advantage of the, of the you know, next workshop that you offer here just based on the interest that you've instilled, honestly, with just this podcast and just talking to you about it. I would be happy to have you. <laughs> now, if there's one take-home message like it that you wanted our listeners to leave with, uh, what would that be? 
narrative medicine is cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I think you've, you've made that very clear. <laughs> no, seriously, what I want you to realize is that narrative medicine is not scary and is not esoteric, and it doesn't require you to write high school English essays or read, you know, Chaucer or whomever, right? Mm -hmm. It really just requires recognizing skills you already have, skills in reading, skills in thinking, skills in listening, and then applying them in new and very deliberate ways that allow you to be a better doctor and a better person. Come on. What more could you <laughs> ask for? Well, in this area, not more, not much more, <laughs> but in other areas for sure. Now, thank you so much, Lucky, for being here. It was truly a pleasure and awesome to learn about your work and the importance of narrative medicine and its benefits. To our listeners, hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And until next time. Just want to say thank you so, so very much for letting me spread the gospel of narrative medicine. It was absolutely my pleasure to be here. Awesome. See you guys next time. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back and merge out!